glad to have those who are joining us online with our live stream, live stream service as well. Uh, you know, the father had caught little Johnny in a lie, and he said, uh, in exasperation, Johnny, don't you know the difference between right and wrong? And Johnny said, yes, Dad, I do. He said, but you always seem to choose the wrong thing. And Johnny said, that's right, Dad, and all this time you thought it was just guesswork. And we're going to talk about right and wrong today, and the question on the table, is homosexuality wrong? Now, if you're new to us, we started a sermon series in the month of July. It just started last Sunday. WWJD, question mark, LGBTQ, that stands for what would Jesus do about lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, the Q either stands for queer or questioning, depending who you talk to. And why are we having this sermon series? See, why are we even having this discussion? Well, that's what we addressed in the first message last Sunday. We said because it's culturally relevant. It's a hot-button issue in our culture right now, maybe the hot-button issue. It's biblically relevant. The Bible speaks to it, so it's legitimate for us to speak to it in church. And number three, it's personally relevant. It's relevant to a lot of families in this church. Whether you are a person who struggles with same-sex attraction or you have a family member who does, there's scarcely a family that has not been touched in a personal way about this issue. And so I promised you last Sunday, we are going to go slow, we're going to be gentle, we're going to strive for that middle ground between grace and truth. We want to speak the truth, but always speak the truth in love. I will tell you in advance, in answering this question today, we're going to be truth heavy. We're going to be heavy on the true side. I've got a, some quotes to read and a lot of scriptural data to put before you, so I'll be tied to my notes more than I usually am, so you may have to work a little harder to stay engaged. Will you do that for me? I know that you can. I know that you will. But the scriptures we'll be going through will be up on the, on the screen. You can take notes. A lot of people do. You won't be able to take notes fast enough to get everything down. If you do want this material on the connection card in that chair in front of you, you can check. I uh, would like a sermon manuscript, and I'll be happy to email you the manuscript of the sermon, and you'll have all of this information. Number one, we're going to approach this under three headings. First of all, apart from God, the question, is homosexuality wrong? Apart from God, there is no wrong. There is no right or wrong. So let's just step back for a minute and consider the whole question, what makes something right or wrong? John 18, 38, Pilate asked, what is truth? In John 14, 6, Jesus answered, I am the truth. Russian novelist Dostoevsky has this line, if God is dead, everything is permitted. Every once in a while, an atheist philosopher will admit the implications of a worldview that does not have God. They'll admit the implications. For instance, William Provine, atheist, writes, Let me summarize my views on what modern evolutionary biology tells us loud and clear. There are no gods. There are no purposes. There's no life after death. There's no ultimate foundation for ethics, no ultimate meaning in life, no free will for humans. I don't much other quotes, but I'm, I'm not going to quote all those. I'm just saying we are moving forward with some presuppositions as we answer this question. And most of you agree with these three presuppositions. Number one, there is a God. Number two, he has revealed his will to us in the Bible. The Bible is the word of God. And number three, we as creatures of the creator God are bound or obligated to obey his will, to obey his word as it's revealed to us in the Bible. Now, people who don't believe those presuppositions they don't care what I'm about to say anyway. They really don't care what the Bible says. But we care because we do believe that and we are Christians. Apart from God and the revelation of his will, 
All ethics and morality is utter subjectivity. If there are no absolute truths revealed to us by God, it's all utterly subjective. I give you this as an example. Are your children boys or girls? Well, to answer that, used to be you would just check the anatomy and you could answer that with a fair degree of certainty. But these days, you have to ask the child themselves about the reality they have constructed in their minds to identify their own gender. And many parents will yield to what their child is telling them is truth or reality. And it's being encoded in our law that you must affirm what a child believes about their sex, whether it corresponds to their anatomy or not. Or you could lose your job, depending on what your vocation is. That is utter subjectivity as far as what is truth and what is reality. I'm not saying that atheists do not live moral lives. Many of them do. Maybe most of them do. Saying there's nothing compelling, however, in that worldview that would necessitate that. All right. So apart from God, there's no right or wrong. Now, let's move forward with the biblical data about marriage, sex, and homosexuality. <clears throat> Where does your Bible start? It starts with creation. In the creation account in Genesis, God defines for us what constitutes the norm for a family. Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God had created him. Male and female, he created them. There's your two genders. Genesis 2.23. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Now, here's the norm for what is a marriage. It is not just two human beings who love and care about each other in a relationship. It is a man human being and a woman human being. This is part of the definition who are in a covenant relationship and all sex that God allows and approves takes place within that relationship. Jesus affirms this in Matthew 19, 4. At the beginning, the creator made the male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Paul affirms this as the model for the family, Ephesians 5, 31. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. It's consistent throughout Scripture. Now, there are six passages in the Bible that speak specifically to homosexual activity. Let me say here, and I'll say this in a future message, there is no sin in being same-sex attracted. And many times, I believe, I've, I've come to the conclusion people cannot help that. We don't know what the, uh, the contribution of nature versus nurture is. The sin is not in same-sex attraction. The sin is in acting upon that attraction. That is entering into homosexual relationships. There are six passages that speak specifically to this in the Bible, starting with the account of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 19. To set it up, God and two angels visited Abraham, and they said, we've heard the outcry of sin coming from Sodom and Gomorrah. We're going to go check it out. And if it's true... We're going to bring condemnation on those towns. And so the two angels disguised as men visited the city of Sodom. They were going to spend the night in the public square when Abraham's nephew Lot said, don't do that, and he took them into his home. So we pick up the narrative, Genesis chapter 19, verse 4. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so we can have sex with them. That didn't happen. But 10 verses later, in verse 24, then the Lord rained down sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah. So these cities and other cities of the plain were judged by God. Presumably, one of the sins they were being judged for is sexual in nature because of this detail and description. But we'll come back to this. 
The second passages are in Leviticus, from the Old Testament, or in Leviticus. Now, as the Israelites were dispossessing the Canaanites in the Promised Land, God gave them laws and rules for their lifestyle so that they would be different from those who, Canaanites who lived in the land that they were dispossessing. Leviticus 18.22, Moses writes, Do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. That's detestable. Leviticus 20.13, If a man lies with a man as one lies with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. Now let's move from the Old Testament to the New Testament. In the New Testament, there are three passages that deal with homosexuality. They were all written by the Apostle Paul. The one that is most specific and explicit is the one right here. We're going to read Romans chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. This comes in a, a long catalog of sins. But Paul writes, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones, in the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, Paul writes, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Of course, this is the passage where he goes on and says, that's what some of you were, but you were washed, you were justified, you were sanctified in the name of the Lord Jesus. So God changed them. 1 Timothy 1.8, law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals, and kidnappers and liars and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Now, those are the six passages in the Bible that address homosexuality. They're pretty straightforward. You do not need a seminary degree or a Bible college degree to understand what is being said there. You don't need to know Greek. You don't need to know Hebrew. The English translations work just fine. Elizabeth Actimer of Union Theological Seminary writes, If there is any one thing that is plainly revealed in Scripture, it is Scripture's absolute condemnation of homosexual activity in every form and in every context. There's no room for negotiation. If homosexual activity is to be squared with biblical teaching, it will only be through subverting the entire authority of Scripture and by setting up a rival version of Christianity. Now you say, Steve, if that's true, well, how do you explain so many people in our culture and society today who are involved in homosexual relationships and still claim to be following God, followers of Jesus, of the Bible. They're in churches that affirm them. How do you explain churches that are called affirming churches that affirm the homosexual lifestyle, marry same-sex couples, ordain homosexuals into ministry and priesthood? How do you explain that? How do they reconcile that position with the Scriptures that we've just read. I mean, they have the same Bible that we have. Well, it's because there is a rival version of Christianity in our culture and our society. Now, what I want to uh, present to you is the five primary alternate interpretations or hermeneutical explanations of these scriptures that we looked at. Hermeneutics is the science of interpreting the Bible. Okay, the five primary ones. I want you to know what they are. Uh, first of all, in dealing specifically with the account of Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament, 
It is suggested that the sin there is not the sin, the sin that's being condemned, is the sin of inhospitality, not the sin of homosexuality. The story, they say, if it is true and historical at all, the homosexual part is just a, a parenthetical detail. The real sin that's being judged is that the, those in Sodom and Gomorrah were not hospitable. They were not willing to take people into their homes and receive them, which was critical in that society for people to do. Now, <clears throat> I read a book in my research. I've read a lot of books on both sides. I read this book called Unclobber, Rethinking Our Misuse of the Bible on Homosexuality. And that author spent an entire chapter on Sodom and Gomorrah with this premise, promoting this understanding that the sin was the sin of inhospitality. What was interesting to me, it was at dealing an entire chapter with this, he completely ignored the two verses in the New Testament that comment on Sodom and Gomorrah and what the nature of the sin was that was being judged in that account. And they are from Peter and from Jude. Second Peter 2, 7. But God rescued Lot out of Sodom because he was a righteous man who was sick of the shameful immorality of the wicked people around him. Not the shameful inhospitality, but the shameful immorality. Jude 1, 7. Don't forget Sodom and Gomorrah, which were filled with immorality and every kind of sexual perversion, literally pursuing strange flesh. Those cities were destroyed by fire and serve as a warning of the eternal fire of God's judgment. Now, that constitutes a Holy Spirit-inspired interpretation for us of the nature of the sin that was being condemned in the account of Sodom and Gomorrah. Here's a second approach. These are, the affirm, these are alternative interpretations of affirming churches. The second approach uses the modern discovery of sexual orientation to dismiss the judgment in those passages that speak to homosexuality. Janet Fishburne of Drew University Theological School writes this about the Romans 1 passage. She says, this passage can only refer to the homosexual acts of heterosexual persons. This is because the writers of the Bible did not distinguish between homosexual orientation and same-gender sexual acts. If this distinction is accepted, the condemnation of homosexuality in Romans does not apply to the sexual acts of homosexual persons. So what she is saying there is the Romans passage condemns only the homosexual acts of heterosexual persons, not the homosexual acts of those who have homosexual orientation because the writers of the Bible simply had no knowledge that there was such a thing as homosexual orientation. Now, this, this speaks to what we've talked about before, the egocentric predicament. We're all bound by the egocentric predicament. We are bound. We live in a certain time and place and a culture. We have prejudices based upon that. We cannot possibly know everything that there is to know, so we cannot speak to absolute truth. And the writers of the Bible, they would say, we're bound by the egocentric predicament. They simply didn't know about sexual orientation. Now, here's the thing. Holy Spirit and Spirit, of the scriptures overcomes the egocentric predicament. The Holy Spirit is well aware of same-sex attraction and homosexual orientation, whether Paul would have been or not. And the Holy Spirit was inspiring Paul. Aside from that, there is documentation that the ancients were very familiar 
with the idea of sexual orientation. And again, I can, if, you want the, if you want that documentation, it's in my manuscript. Okay, number three, third alternative approach to these scriptures is that Paul was using a rhetorical device in Romans, <clears throat> and he didn't believe what he was writing. So this, this, what they say here is that Paul was trying to entrap the Romans. He was going to use their judgment and condemnation the, of those with a Jewish background against those with a Gentile background by writing this first part of Romans chapter 1 and getting down on the Gentiles and all the things that they were doing that were sinful. It was a rhetorical device. He was simply reflecting the Jewish prejudices of his day when he wrote that. It wasn't something he personally believed. He didn't believe that homosexuality was wrong or any of the other catalog of sins in Romans chapter 1 was actually wrong. Now, it's a false choice. Paul can use a, a rhetorical device and believe what he's writing is the truth as well, which is, in fact, the case. Number four, a denial of the inspiration of the selected passages, the passages of Virginia, just to deny that they are inspired by God at all. William Kent a member of the United Methodist Committee to Study Homosexuality asserts, quote, the scriptural texts in the Old and New Testament condemning homosexual practice are not inspired by God, nor otherwise of enduring Christian value. Considered in the light of the best biblical, theological, scientific, and social knowledge, the biblical condemnation of a homosexual practice is better understood as representing time and place bound cultural prejudice. So you just get your scissors out, and uh, those passages that contradict what is uncomfortable for you, cut them out. Those parts are not inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now, let me say this. A lot of people get down on Paul because, like I said, those three passages come from the Apostle Paul. And there are Christians who say, well, I believe what Jesus said. I'm, in, I'm into the red letters of the Bible, but I don't believe what Paul wrote was inspired at all. This is not a lesson on inspiration, but let's just, let's just look at this real quickly. Number one, Jesus told his apostles that the Holy Spirit was going to come to them and lead them into all truth, and they would be revealing that truth after he ascended into heaven. Jesus said to the 12 in John chapter 16, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. The Spirit will tell you whatever he receives from me. That's Paul letting them know. This is a promise of inspiration. When Paul wrote, he believed that what he was writing were the inspired words of the Holy Spirit and the commands of Jesus, not just his own personal opinion. 1 Corinthians 2.13, Paul wrote, when we tell you these things, that's the apostolic we, means when we apostles tell you these things, we do not use words that come from human wisdom. Instead, we speak words given us by the Spirit, using the Spirit's words to explain spiritual truths. That is a claim to Holy Spirit inspiration. 1 Corinthians 14, 37. Paul writes, The things I write to you are the Lord's commandments. 2 Corinthians 12, 3. Paul says, Christ speaks through me. I do not make any of these claims for myself. I do not claim that the Holy Spirit is combining my words with spiritual thoughts and I'm giving you new revelation. I do not claim that the God Christ is speaking through me. I can't make those claims. I'm not an apostle, and I'm not Holy and Spirit-inspired, and therefore I can be wrong, and often am. But Paul made these claims. That these are the biblical claims. All Scripture is written by inspiration of God, is profitable for teaching, correcting, rebuking, 
training in righteousness, the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Who wrote that? Paul. All scriptures, God breathed. This, he says, this is not just me. This is coming from God. Finally, the fifth alternative approach is the elevation of personal experience over scripture. The elevation of personal experience over scripture. L.T. Johnson wrote, we know what the Bible says. I think it's important to state clearly that we do, in fact, reject the straightforward commands of Scripture and appeal instead to another authority when we declare that same-sex unions can be holy and good. We appeal explicitly to the weight of our own experience and the experience of thousands of others have witnessed to, which tells us that to claim our own sexual orientation is, in fact, to accept the way in which God has created us. By doing so, we explicitly reject the premises of the scriptural statements condemning homosexuality. We are fully aware of the weight of scriptural evidence pointing away from our position, yet we place our trust in the power of the living God to reveal as powerfully through personal experience and testimony as through written texts. If there is a conflict, then we trust and our obedience must be paid to the living God rather than to the words of Scripture. So they're placing themselves into a position where they must choose between the Bible and their personal experience and what God is now revealing to them through personal experience, and it seems to contradict what he has revealed in the past. So those are the five uh, basic alternative approaches to these scriptural passages. I leave it to you to decide for yourself which make the most sense, if any. As for me, I do not think that they hold water. I believe you could perhaps look at one of the six passages that condemn homosexuality in the Bible and say, well, maybe there's a cultural issue. Maybe there's a historical issue. Maybe there's a translation issue. Maybe there's some wiggle room with that one passage. But to say that in all six instances, either the writers got it wrong or there was historically they got it wrong or culturally they got it wrong or there was no inspiration over here and, and personal experience over there to say that for all six smacks of desperation of desperation and I think that is part of the issue there are those who desperately want the approbation the approval of God but they desperately don't want to be in conflict with either a family member or themselves and what they are experiencing they want both and so they're striving, swallowing the gnat, swallowing the camel rather, and straining at the gnat. All right, one final thought here. Having looked at the biblical data, and that is this, telling the truth is not an act of hate. Telling the truth is an act of love. John 8, 32, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You may have heard the name Frank Abagnale. Frank Abagnale Jr. successfully impersonated a history professor, a doctor, a pilot, an assistant attorney general, while forging checks worth $2.5 million, all before he was 21 years old. A movie was made about his life entitled Catch Me If You Can. There's a poignant scene in the movie between Frank Jr. and his father, Frank Sr. Frank Sr. says, Frank, I'm your father. And Frank Jr. looks at him and then says, then ask me to stop. Ask me to stop. And his father said, you can't stop. You ever seen a family where you've got a good parent, bad parent? You know, one parent's 
committed, the disciplinarian, the other parent wants to abdicate that because they don't want to be in conflict with the kids. You've got good parent, bad parent. But in that case, the parent who won't discipline is not the good parent. God says, I discipline every child that I love. Someone is on a destructive path, then telling them the truth is an act of love, not an act of hate. Let me end here with a letter from a married couple. Now, this is this uh, the husband isn't has been an elder in the church for years, and the wife's a Bible college graduate and a Christian couple, and they raised their kids in the church. Well, the son came out to them as gay when he was 20, 21 years old. This is about 10 years ago, and uh, they've been on that journey ever since. And they shared with me a letter that they wrote to their son, part of the process they went through after this happened, and uh, gave me permission to read this letter. Dear son, since you were born, when we first knew that God had begun to form you, we dedicated ourselves to nurture you, help you, comfort, encourage, discipline, and urge you to love and obey God. We cannot adequately describe the intense love we have for you, and rooted in that love is a profound concern for your well-being. With that concern in mind, we want to ask you to consider several things. In light of the fact that God ordained marriage to be between a man and a woman, that the Bible warns against every form, every form of sexual immorality, that there is not a single verse of Scripture that affirms same-gender sex, I must conclude that sexuality between two people of the same gender is not endorsed in Scripture. In addition, the verses in Scripture that refer specifically to same-gender sex offer strong condemnation. Scripture is full of difficult teachings. These difficult teachings become very difficult when we know people whom we love and care deeply about who choose to disregard or compromise God's commands and warnings. We must not allow our heartfelt emotions to alter the truth of Scripture. We must speak the truth in love and do our best to shine God's light into the darkness. The news you share with us has been extremely difficult. It's heart-wrenching for us to realize that you bore the burden all these years without coming to us. We want to be there for you now and help you in any way we can. Be assured of our unfailing love and prayers, dad and mom. Now, if you take a biblical stance here and oppose homosexual practice, often you're accused of being a hater or a homophobe or a bigot. I simply ask you, does that letter sound like hate or does it sound like love? It opens with love, and it closes with love. And in the middle is simply the truth. And that's where we want to be. Our Father in heaven, we ask this morning, as we look into your word, we consider these issues, we consider the fact that we're dealing with actual people, and there's heartbreak, and there's, it's gut-wrenching, and it's traumatic, and there's enmity. Sometimes it takes place. We pray, God, you'll help us to find that middle ground, that you'll Help us to be convicted, which means convinced of what you actually say in your word. Take our stand, but to speak the truth in love, to bring healing, restoration, forgiveness. In Jesus' name.